You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Uh, Sally Rippon drops by. She's an illustrator and author of Books for Children and uh, she brings with her authors and illustrators that she admires and it's always good to have you in, Sally. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And today we have David Burton joining us. He's joining us by phone. He's a writer, playwright and speaker, teacher, uh, presents in schools. He joins us today to speak about his memoir, How to Be Happy, a memoir of love, sex and teenage confusion. The book won the Text Prize for Young Adult and Children's Writing in 2000. It's been out since last year, and uh, thank you so much for being there, David. No worries. Thanks, everyone. Hello. Hi, Hello. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I know three three against one, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's intimidating. Yeah. Well, congratulations <laughs> on your book, and I think I mean we can sort of go straight to it. It's a very topical, very important time to have a book out for young readers about love, sex, and teenage confusion, particularly around sexuality. Are you feeling like this book um, very much has a, a place on, um, on teenage bookshelves, David? Well, yeah. I mean, that was the whole purpose behind writing it, really. Um, I, I grew up in... Um, I'm 28 years old now, so the book kind of covers my time at high school and just a bit after, which is kind of like the early 2000s. Um, and and I'd like to say everything has changed <laughs> since then and, and um, I think teens today are far better supported than I was. But unfortunately, you know, as we see from the news today, it's still difficult for young people out there. Um, I, I grew up with uh, a long history of clinical depression and anxiety and I was massively confused about my sexuality and didn't really know where to put that confusion or where to go um, and so ended up in some pretty dark places. So... So the inspiration behind writing the book was just to get, you know, a quote-unquote normal teenage story out there that's me basically saying, look, I went through this and um, it sucked, but I think it's normal to think about these things or have these questions or, you know, to feel all sorts of things. Um, And it's really, really important to get the message out there to young people that you get through it and you grow up and you start to figure some stuff out. Um, because the consequences can be pretty dark when we're talking about this kind of thing. And, and was this a difficult book to write, David? Because you revisit some, uh, you know, really turbulent times in your sort of young adult years. Um, and I think for a lot of us, we choose to forget um, some of the um, difficulties we have around those times. But what was it like revisiting that part of your life? Um, it was, uh, well, I, I think the key phrase that you've picked up on there is choose to forget. And I think it is something that a lot of us, a lot of us do. We really want to move on from our teenage years really quickly. Then there's this kind of like cultural disconnect between how we talk to teenagers and how teenagers talk to us, which means there's often a massive gap in the communication between adults and young people and no one really feels like they're being understood. So yeah, it was difficult. Like there's stuff, <laughs> there's stuff in there that I, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily worried about, um, telling teenagers and strangers but just knowing that people like my mother-in-law would read about how I lost my virginity <laughs> and things like that came for some interesting discussions around the dinner table but um you know it's all in aid of this higher purpose of of getting it out there to teens who need it because when I was 15 I, I just wanted an honest account I just wanted to know I wasn't alone I just wanted to know that you know this this is a common experiences that I was having yeah do you think that's part of the problem Dave is that adults 
often trivialise these experiences of young people because revisiting their own young selves is, is quite traumatic often and they're not very honest with that. The, they will think of who they honestly were as a teenager and, and repress that because a lot of teenagers struggle with identity, whether it's gender or sexual identity, all kinds of identity. And that's where you've been brave enough to go into that, not just for your own self-exploration on a, on a psychologist's couch, but also for the benefit of, of young people as well because you know a book can make a difference i think perhaps reading a book like this yourself as a young person might have given you that opportunity to think oh there are other people out there like me and and not felt so so much anxiety which then attaches to depression doesn't it you know obviously that sense of not knowing who you are in the world is extremely anxious yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And, um, you know, statistically we know, I mean, the latest statistics came out a couple of weeks ago and, and, um, the, the Lifeline CEO called the, you know, epidemic of suicide in our country a national emergency. Um, and, and one of the, the, the leading killer of, of young people under age, uh, under the age of 25 is suicide. So I think the stakes are quite high when we're talking about this. Look, to go, to go back to your point about, you know, is, is this, um, you know, the, how we communicate to our young people about this is really scary. And I think that's what we've seen, you know, really at the forefront of this safe schools debate is just how scared people are when we start talking about sex and young people. We get this really, really strong message of fear. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, I can understand that because I think parents and teachers you know, we really want to take on a role of being calm, authoritarians, and and being quote unquote not perfect, but but certainly strong and calm and knowledgeable. And so, when we get to the really intimate details of the human experience of sex and sexuality, where there's often a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of things that we're told we shouldn't express or that aren't for public ears, we start to really kick into that anxiety and fearful response as a society. But the danger in that, as you say, is that we get into a part, we get into a habit of repression and we get into a habit of, well, we just don't talk about that in school and we don't talk about that in some homes or, or so on. And that can lead to a disturbing lack of really significant knowledge and important knowledge about things like sex and sexuality that can lead to anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, um, really negative mental health effects or, you know, unhealthy sexual practices um, that are really grounded in ignorance more than anything else. So, so look, the ripple effects on this really don't stop um, which is, yeah, again, why I, why I was driven to write the book in the first place, yeah. And even just creating empathy for a start, you know, even if you're not the child, even if you know in your mind very clearly who you are in the world, I think part of what I understand from the safe schools is it's it's not about teaching children to be homosexuals as some people fear yeah. that it might be it's just about creating empathy and understanding and it's really just anti-bullying because you know all the statistics show that out of this program that they have actually saved lives you know that lgbt yeah. kids are at the most risk because yeah. not only are they confused about their gender identity but they're also feeling like there's something wrong with them because we're not saying it's okay you know this is the time you find out who you are and so they're, they're not yeah, getting exactly. that support and do you think had you got that support when you were younger you might have been able to to manage um your depression anxiety a little bit more do you think that was a result of not knowing who you are because you do talk openly in the book about it also being a part of who you are yes absolutely i i i, I think look the more information i had at hand 
the the better off I would have been. I mean, I was an incredibly curious kid. I was I was top of all my classes. I was vice school captain. I was I was not you know an, an ignoramus. And when I was thinking about sex, I went in search of information. Awfully, I went in search in porn because that's the only place that I could find kind of adult communication about sex and sexuality. The sum total of my sexual education at school was one biology lesson and um, and a ultrasound of an abortion, would you believe it or not, in, in an ethics class. And that was the sum total of my knowledge about sex. So I went to other sources to try and find out. I mean, my journey ended up being that I, because of the man I was, who I guess in kind of some people's lexicon would equal as queer, I guess, because I'm a man and I have all the man bits and I am masculine and want to be a man, but I don't fit into footy, um, uh, jock hair, like, buffy-type guy. And that became incredibly apparent at school. I went into the arts. I made... Um, long-lasting friendships with women and because of all of that of course the bullying message against me was gay mm. and I thought okay maybe I am because I'm a bit scared of girls at the moment and guys may or may not turn me on I don't know I'm 15 everything seems to turn me on and I kind of ran straight into homosexuality and with a million miles an hour but when a couple of sexual experiences led me to go oh maybe that's not what I am but am I I don't know it led to this massive breakdown when I was 21 where I wanted to wipe myself out from the world because I didn't think I was worthwhile because I thought I was a sexual deviant or something because I didn't know how to talk about who I was or where I was. or And this is like, we, we say sexuality, for me it was about being loved. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of kids it's about being loved. It's about who you end up with for the rest of your life or how you construct these most intimate relationships and parts of yourself. And if you are confused about that at a core level and aren't receiving positive information about, at the very least, like you say, just empathy, just the understanding that we can all respect each other and all listen to each other and all understand that we're all at different points on our journey, then, um, then yeah, it, it's very dangerous. And do you think in an ideal future that gender identity won't even matter, that it will just be about love? Oh, of course. And I think, look, that's where we're heading. I mean, the more our, the more letters we add to the um, sexual identity alphabet, the more it's becoming clear that we're all somewhere on this sexual spectrum. Of course, sexuality isn't black and white. And, um, of course, gender identity. And, look, you know, as, as um, hurt and kind of... Um, downhearted as you can be listening to the safe school drama unfold it's really heartening to hear so many you know in the government and across the country really fight for this program and really want to keep it in and are really able to identify that this is an important thing for kids in the 21st century to start learning about these these types of things um so yeah look i think that's where we're headed is it about being happy david uh sure <laughs> because you know we hear a lot but yeah but we, we hear a lot with parenting that you know wanting your kid to be happy is is perhaps you know rather than other things like fulfilled or have yeah. a life of meaning um striving for happy maybe is the wrong mark but i'm interested in your yeah. thoughts on that well, yeah, and I think this is something I explore in the book a lot, is that happiness is actually a potentially quite dangerous concept. If you're striving for happiness, if you're striving for perfection, 
um, if you're striving for a life free of suffering, then unfortunately you're not really striving for a human life because, of course, all humans, no matter how rich, tall, fat, skinny, etc., etc., gay, straight, um, are bound to some kind of suffering. And I, for me, growing up um, and, and becoming an adult kind of happened when I was able to tackle that for one and go, okay, well, how can I be and how can I survive in this world being unhappy? How can I have a relationship to darkness, to fear, to anxiety, to sadness in myself that still, that, that leads me to have a full, meaningful life without taking that so seriously that I want to off myself? And again, that was about receiving information. That was about being educated on humans, human emotions and feelings and intimacy with yourself and getting to know yourself better and being able to forgive yourself. And those kinds of concepts are like huge life tasks for all of us, no matter what age. They're ongoing human battles that we all have within ourselves. Um, and I think, you know, I, I am not a parent and I think that's one of the things that parents struggle hugely with is when do you let your child be upset and find their own path through that emotion to being able to heal themselves like how do you how do you endow someone with resilience all the while denying your own emotional impulse to leap in front of the bullet and protect them mm. or to make them feel happy as instantly as possible um and i think that's a task you know that that we all have to face and struggle with it's a big question but yes i i agree with what you're saying which is happiness is a very complex idea and, and david 28 is quite a young age to have written a memoir was, was there a point when you were um thinking about writing this book or in the process of developing it knowing you wanted to address these issues that young people face were you um did you think about writing a fictionalized account of this perhaps stemming from your experience but not delving directly into your life Oh, absolutely. Um, before I wrote books, I have written and still write um, theatre. And many of the plays I've written for young people focus on a lot of the themes that come up in the book just naturally. It seems to be what I'm passionate about. I think that, you know, the decision to write a memoir, first of all, it wasn't like I got up one day and went, I'm going to write a memoir. Like, <laughs> like any creative process, it was far more messier and kind of organic than that. But, but my decision to pursue it I think it's because is because just just the notion that it's real is so powerful mm. I think for readers and I think it's why you know biography and memoir continues to be one of the most popular um, forms of of literature like just just when when you have a good biography and a good memoir and the author has really dedicated themselves to you know telling you what it's like to go through life as them you know, I've read many biographies in my life that are that are healing. Just like, just like, I, you know, I humbly, humbly hope mine has the capability to be for some people, um, because it's that connection, it's that ability to reach across the page and go, ah, I can relate to, I can relate to this experience and feel better about your own experience. Yeah. And you do now a lot of talks in schools and on panels about these topics. Um, I know that parents do get very anxious about the thought that their children not being happy and, you know, perhaps emotional intelligence is, is a spectrum, you know, like gender identity might be as well. There, yeah. You know, there are a whole lot of emotions that are okay and there are a whole lot of emotions that aren't okay. Um, do you have anything that you would suggest to young people or, or people caring for young people 
that you, you you said that you looked into meditation you meditate yourself and you did a lot of reading what would be some some ideas that you would share with young people that might help them struggling with these things i think a really important point especially when you're a young person with academic pressure and you know whatever's going on in your family life and home life and um and so on is is to be very aware of what gives you pleasure and what gives you joy and to stay connected to that i was lucky in that i had writing and i had literature so i read an enormous amount i've also been really blessed in my time to be a nerd so <laughs> so to really delve into to be passionate um, you about know things. hey to be passionate about things which be is really the definition things. of nerdism, isn't it? Just to be passionate That's about exactly. something. Exactly. Yeah. Be passionate and curious about the world. And, of course, we all are. But to embrace that and not be afraid of that, because actually that's the core of you that you can be certain of at 16. And it might be at 16 that you're super passionate about, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is fine. Go and watch all of that and become that, like, if that's what gives you joy for the moment to plug into the world and to be able to breathe a sigh of relief at the end of the day and kind of get through it, that's really important. I mean, stand-up stand up comedians, for me, were really influential at some times, but I felt really dark at just being able to laugh and keep up some laughter. Um, so I, I, I... And I think, you know, the bottom line is... Uh, and a message I really try to send home with the book is if you are in a place where you're feeling dark and you don't know how to handle things, or even not, even if you've just got questions, then really make an effort to be proactive to seek out help, to seek out those people in your life. It might be teachers, parents, friends, whatever, um, online forums to, to really get become an informed citizen of the world and about yourself and what you're going through. Um, one of the most harmful messages that I really swallowed was being a strong, independent man meant not asking for help and being a responsible adult meant being independent when, of course, that's a complete lie and very harmful. Um, and the moment that I was actually able to ask for help um, and reach out and start getting answers and being more vulnerable, that's when I started actually becoming the person who I was and the adult um, that I so wanted to be. Um, so, look, be open, be passionate, and, and know what gives you pleasure in the world and reach out for help when you want, and it, when you your, feel like you need it. In your um, book, David, at the end, you do give out the Lifeline number and the Kids Helpline number, and you've used these numbers, um, you say, as well, at those times when you've needed to, to get that sort of um, crisis support. Um, you do, in the book, um, speak about self-harm um, with your peers as well that uh, you experienced that trying to support a peer through a, um, her difficulties and what I mean what I suppose if, if young people are encountering that in their life would you suggest they do if they can see a friend that's in in a crisis situation this is one of the most difficult questions and it's a question I get asked a lot. Particularly when you're a young person, I think it's really, really important and I wish someone had told me and had really spent the time... And, and look, my parents tried to tell me um, I wasn't in a really great place to be able to listen. But nevertheless, that, that it's not your responsibility to save this person. That's the first and foremost thing that you need to remember. You don't want to go down and disappear into the dark vortex with them. It's not your sole responsibility, even if you are the best friend, even if you are the sibling, even if you are the son or daughter trying to rescue the parent. It isn't your responsibility. Your 
responsibility is to be the selfish teenager that media would tell us that you are <laughs> and to look to look after yourself and to get the help that you need first and foremost and and when a person is in a position of self-mutilation in particular that's a mental illness and a mental illness is something that needs to be tackled by a whole community of people of which you are one um being the friend son daughter brother sister or whatever so you need allies so even if they're not prepared to ask for help you need to go and ask for help and seek out help from those sources from look if if your starting point is lifeline or kids helpline then that's great they'd be able to hook you up with some other resources the teacher who you have get on with at school will hopefully be able to help you out along with parents and so on in my particular scenario i lived under the threat of my best friend saying look if you tell anyone about this i will never speak to you again um and i wish i had told someone earlier because although the friendship suffered by me telling someone about what was going on she got better so that's what you know that ultimately might be the price you have to pay but you with adult help you may be able to navigate it as well and your relationship will be will be better for us but yeah the the key thing is that engage with a community get help um and it's not your sole responsibility at the end of the day to save and other in, people and in the work you do with schools david and and through writing this book have you had much uh feedback or direct contact with students who have really responded to to what you're doing and what you've written in this book yeah i get um it's a lovely part of the experience i get emails um I get quite a few emails every week talking about the book and how young people have responded to it um and have found it helpful and connect with different aspects of the book the self mutilation might be a key aspect for them or the anxiety or the sexual sexual um identity stuff or I I grew up with two brothers with Asperger syndrome and and parents who suffered from mental illness as well so there's a lot of people who write to me about that um and that's really lovely to have that point of connection and similarly i get notes from parents and teachers who have discovered the book and are trying to subtly slash not so subtly put it in front of a young person in their life that they feel needs it um so that's been a really 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 rewarding um experience yeah well thank you for spending some time with us david stan grant is a wiradjuri man author and journalist who's just released his latest and very personal book Talking to My Country. It's a passionate account of his early family life lived on the fringes of Australian cities, his experiences of racism, his work over the dec- over the decades as a foreign correspondent for CNN in the Middle East and China. In the past 12 months Stan's become increasingly vocal about Aboriginal dispossession and he uh, also won a Walkley for his powerful columns in Guardian Australia. He recently dropped via Triple R to speak with us about Talking to My Country. So, Stan, thanks for coming in and congrats on your book. Um, I personally couldn't put it down. I think it's the the rhythm and the honesty of this. And you say that it took you a while to start this book to actually get into it. And I wonder what drove you to write Talking to My Country. Yeah, it was really interesting, actually, because um, I think whenever you take on issues of race and issues that fundamentally go to the heart of Australia and the Australian identity and the way Australia sees itself. And the same in any other country, to be honest, when you're dealing with issues that are so fundamental 
uh, it can be a very fraught process, a very delicate and very sensitive process. You need to walk a very fine line between the way that I feel, the way that I know many of my own people, Indigenous people feel, and what Australia as a whole is prepared to engage with and be prepared to listen to. You know, um, James Baldwin, the who's a great influence on me and one of the, probably my favourite author, really, the black American writer, um, said that he loves America so much more than any other country on earth, therefore he demands and the right to be able to critique it. And I think it's the same thing here. And, you know, but to raise these issues often means that you are you are attacked or dismissed for being treasonous in some ways, you know, or um, ungrateful, that it's... Our citizenship and our acceptance is somehow conditional on our gratitude. You see it in America as well, that a history of slavery and racism and bigotry and the struggles of civil rights, and it is conditional on their gratitude. We are grateful for you accepting us. And the same thing does exist here. So trying to broach this in a way that I can talk about those issues and yet engage with people and bring people to it with open hearts and open minds is always a very, very delicate process. And you, you write often through the book, you, you, you address the mm. reader directly, mm. and that mm. stood out to me. It, it, it did make me pay attention, but I wonder what, um, whether that was a, a device that you, you uh, planned on or whether that's just the way that no, you were writing? No, I think it was more just the way that came about. Uh, while there was... You know, there's, I think there's, there is necessarily a tentative sort of tone to this because it is such so delicate and because Indigenous people and our place in Australia and our identities can be so fragile and vulnerable that we do need to negotiate that very, very carefully. And um, I yet I had only a very short time to write the book. Uh, the background to the book is... You know, the, the Adam Goods booing issue really brought these things to the fore. I felt that at that time Australia was once again being reminded of the chasm of our history and how separate we are in this country and how oblivious we can be often to each other and our own voices and how things can hurt and other people can be even unaware of the hurt that they're inflicting. Uh, and I think for the first time these issues were front and centre in Australia because it was around sport. It wasn't on the front page anymore, it was on the back page. And uh, so I seized on that moment to be able to have a very direct conversation between us and you. And and I don't use that word to, to, to symbolise any division, just a statement of reality that there has been us and there has been you. And for much of Australia's history, we have not been you because we have not been included. We were deemed not worthy of citizenship, not worthy. That the Australian identity was framed around our exclusion. That the identity that came out of the settlement of Australia and founded in the myths of settlement and enshrined in anthems and poems and and, and, and songs and popular culture and writings and was was founded on that 
that sense of our exclusion and dispossession. And if we occupied a place in the public imagination, it was the outsider, it was the marginalised. Now, that's just a statement of reality. That's not a statement of... You know, it's not an aspiration. Uh, it's not a statement of intent that we actually should live divided and separate lives here because I don't believe that. I believe actually the opposite, that Indigenous people have reached out to Australia continuously, constantly, from the margins, from a point of exclusion, asking for acceptance, demanding citizenship and equality, fighting as my grandfather did, fighting in wars for a country prepared to die in a foreign land to defend a country that didn't want you. So... The example of our lives is that we've tried to cross that bridge. We've tried to to be able to bridge the chasm between us. Uh, and it has been a long and slow process. And so then we in, saw with um, Adam Goods what can happen. We saw just how deeply those divisions are and how deeply entrenched they are. That's why I use those words, you. I'm talking directly to you. I want you to respond to this. I want you to respond to it uh, as... as as uh, as human beings to see the humanity of our own people you know when you look at the adam goods thing and it comes from a place that's deeply deeply embedded in the australian imagination the fact that a 13 year old girl and that was the genesis of this could could taunt him and abuse him as an ape comes from that original place that we occupied at the point of settlement, and that is that we were subhuman. That you, we didn't have a place in Australia. We, Our humanity was denied. You can draw a line from that and dispossession and terra nullius to a 13-year-old girl calling someone an ape. That's where that comes from. It is embedded in the Australian imagination. And you write uh, at the beginning of the book, Stan, that you've, you'd started this book so many times and stopped. Mm. Was it that Adam Good's booing saga which led to him essentially taking personal leave from the game to know what you wanted to say and how you wanted to say it? Yeah, I, I think I sort of stumbled into it really because in in terms of starting and finishing i remember starting i mean i look i only had two months to write the book so given the production process and the publication date and everything and the 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 time that i agreed to do it i agreed to do it in august i needed the manuscript beginning of october so it was a very truncated process which added an urgency i think to the uh, to the writing but when i say i've begun this many times this is many times in my life i recall being you know, a schoolboy having to salute the flag and pledge allegiance to the Queen and, you know, recite the oath when I was, you know, five and six years old in the late 60s in Australia and going home to my grandfather and saying, this doesn't make sense. I, even, I was aware of it even then. As a five or six-year-old, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense that we lived the way we lived and and I knew something was wrong and I knew it wasn't just poverty something had put us there so this is a conversation i've begun from the age of five you know i remember when i left griffith which is where my family was sort of bro- broadly sort of based and um moved to canberra and at the age of sort of 15 standing up in front of the class to talk about to introduce myself effectively and talk about aboriginal issues to come back in and find you know uh insults and taunts written on the blackboard you know um this is a process that I've begun many times. And whenever we raise these subjects with other Australians, we know that the the weight of our history sits very heavily on those on those discussions and those conversations. So definitely 
you know, this has been a long and fraught process. I think the Adam Goods thing really brought it to a head. And I wrote at the height of that, and I wasn't going to write anything. I felt, here we are again. And I'd spent half my working life outside of Australia, and I'd looked at Australia from afar and, you know, come back to back to Australia and found that it's still fighting old battles. And I thought, look, I'm really not going to engage in this. I'm just, frankly, over it. And it is much easier and better for my life that I just get on with the things that I do. Um, you know, I've been interested in foreign affairs. I was an international correspondent for CNN. I was working in international affairs for Sky News. Um, I'm interested in, you know, American foreign policy, Russian politics, Chinese politics, Middle East history, as I am in anything else, you know. so And, and I could occupy that space very comfortably and, you know, I'd proved myself in that area. I'd covered all of those things for years and... And it would be a lot easier in, in terms of my own personal life and well-being. But finally I, I decided to write about the Adam Goods thing. And I didn't want to write and say, I know why you boo Adam Goods and, and you're all racists. Because I didn't feel as if that was the full story. I didn't, couldn't speak to what was in the hearts or heads of the people who booed him. Because they were saying there was a range of reasons, and perhaps there were. Sometimes it's just a mob voice. But what I could say was what we heard, and it was a last effort, I think, from me to open up that space and say to people, listen, when you boo Adam Goods, whatever motive, what we hear is the same howl of humiliation that we have heard for 200 years. We have heard it. It is damaging. It kills us. It robs us of our lives. It, 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 it sends us mad. You know, it is the reason, a big part of the reason, that we die 10 years younger and that we are locked up in prison to the extent that we are. There are enormous challenges within our communities. We, we fail ourselves. There are issues that we need to grapple with as well. But the foundation of the malaise that sits at the heart of Indigenous lives and communities still is rooted in that our place in the public imagination and we were seeing this played out again and in writing it that way it opened up a discussion that i couldn't have even anticipated people wanted to engage with it and and you 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 um republished that essay in that article in this book and i remember reading it at the time and and I I wonder whether I mean that conscious decision that you you made at that mm. time to engage on that issue um it it seemed it seemed different to me because mm. I thought I haven't seen Stan Grant say yeah. some, say this before and wow and it really um made me listen and and read and I read the comments and I and the response was quite yeah, it was amazing enormous, yeah. and but you write in 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 this book Stan that you um have always brought your values to your work as a journalist. And yeah. I think the best journalists do that. And yeah. you, But you, you're speaking out specifically on issues now rather yeah. than it being spoken through your work. Yeah, is that I the think, difference? Yeah, I think that is the difference. And I think you reach a point in your life as well where you feel qualified, you know, capable. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm at that point. And, and I consciously wanted to have a life free of the shackles of this country's history. Um, freed from the narrow confines of our own identity. You know, I'm an Indigenous person. That is who I am. That is at the core of my being. That informs everything that I do. It's the way I see the world. But there are many layers to me, as there are many layers to other Indigenous people. We don't exist in this in this very narrow, confined world of 
indigenous identity you know we have many layers to ourselves i could be an indigenous person a Wiradjuri man living in new york as i can be in sydney now i take that with me um and when i was reporting whether it be in afghanistan or pakistan or china or the middle east or wherever i was i gravitated to those stories that told me about my own people and about my own country how the big shifts of world history shaped ordinary lives and how people lived with the weight of that history how they lived lives of dignity and meaning when all certainty had been removed i I looked for those connections because that was what was inside me they were the eyes that i brought to those stories so to actually then write about these things i think people looked at that and said well he has had a life outside of this he has ostensibly had a successful life and people trust you you yeah perhaps they do because of that perhaps they go look he hasn't been someone you know shouting from the fringes or, or or the voice of protest and not that there is anything wrong with that because that is absolutely essential that is part of what's put me here that voice of protest and i don't lay claim to that tradition because that hasn't been my role my role has been as an observer and a writer and a, uh, you know, and, and a reporter. And in a sense, I was bringing that back here to a story that suddenly presented itself at a time when I was here in the country that I felt qualified and capable uh, to actually contribute to and to write around. So it was a different, different time and a different context, and and it allowed me to express things that I wanted to express in a way that I felt I could do so with some credibility and validity. And your career, as as you mentioned, as many people, of course, know, has taken you all around the world as a foreign correspondent with CNN. And Mm. I'm really really interested in the book, how your, I suppose, fraught relationship with Australia is expressed. And you write that you found refuge outside of Australia, although you seem to have found it very hard to initially make that leap. Yeah, and it's hard to stay outside because my roots are here. It's terribly confronting for an indigenous person to find that they are separated from the very things that lie at the core of our identity which is place and belonging and kinship and i was you know a million miles from those touchstones but i did find it in other ways i would find it when i was reporting in pakistan or afghanistan i'd find it in the local people who were like my people you know in mongolia or china you know, you go and you'd see local people who were like my people, people who live very close to the earth, who were very connected to the earth. Um, I, I found that everywhere, and, and, and I found a sense of place and belonging there as well in the, the depth of the connection that those people have to their lands and how they allowed me to share in that. So that, that was nourishing for me. But there is also an incredible sense of liberation when you are removed from the shackles of your history. Every time we meet a non-Indigenous person in Australia, that history sits between us. We wait for that judgment. We wait for that, that those, those questions, the ignorance that can come from that, the, the hurt that can come from that, the constant process of having to prove who we are and defend ourselves and our right to express our identities in australia it is a constant negotiation and it is really tiring and it gets in the way of the freedom to live your life the way that anyone else would 
the freedom to aspire to be whatever you want to be. It's the reason that we don't have an Australian Prime Minister who's Indigenous. It's the reason that we don't have an Indigenous person on the bench of the High Court or running one of the, the top you know, 100 companies in Australia or you know, running one of our top four banks. Or Why is that? Well, well because you... we have to struggle constantly to defend mm. and express ourselves and to aspire to those things in a country where our acceptance has always been a point of negotiation or conditional. And you're right about education and, and saying that reminds me where you talk about going to the principal's office at age 15 mm. or 16 yeah. and essentially your whole Being class of, of cousins yeah. and, and, and friends just like, well, you know, that's the end of school for you. And yeah. this, this lack of ambition, and I, I mean, I'm passionate as many people yeah. um, who care about ed- education are, that we should be ambitious for every child, yeah. every and child you regardless. See, you should see the potential of every child and you see this is the problem. I mean, we're already starting behind. You know, we are coming from a tradition of education because our parents and grandparents were denied those opportunities. So I was the sort of at the forefront of the first generation of people who were actually looking for a way in and trying to get a foothold on that ladder with the potential to finish high school and maybe go to university. And we have to overcome that deep-seated bigotry and that, 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 that tyranny of low expectations. And the expectation was that... We would leave school at 14 or 15 because we weren't legally bound to go to school anymore. Therefore, what was the point? Because there was nothing waiting for us at the other end. And, yeah, look, were we hard going? Yeah, you know, there were some tough boys. There were, you know, we weren't the easiest of students. Why? How could we be? But surely education is about seeing beyond that to the true potential of the person and being able to enhance and encourage that potential and that doesn't just impact your education when that happened i fortunately got out my my father got a job as we always did we moved constantly my dad got a job in a sawmill outside canberra i stumbled through the last couple of years in canberra high school uh, as the only indigenous kid in the school and sort of kept my head down and managed to sort of be tossed out at the other end you know with a with a high school certificate you know so and with the potential to go to university Uh, but my cousins and friends who didn't do that who left at 14 or 15 it was a ticket to jail to addiction and to death and they are many of them are dead and they're my age that's what happens when you choke off aspiration when you bind people in your own bigotry and your own low expectations for them it it kills people literally and the most recent Close the Gap report showed that on all those indicators, health, life expectancy, yeah. incarceration rates, yeah. um, there's been no real improvement across those despite years of supposed government effort. Um, and, and, if, and if there is improvement, it's incremental and it doesn't, it doesn't meet the, right, the pace of improvement in the broader community. So if we improve our life expectancy by two years... Australia improves its by five. So we're still struggling with that gap. Now, life expectancy means, you know, low life expectancy means lower lifetime earnings. It means families left without grandparents to help raise children. And as we know, grandparents play a role in that. They allow parents to work, both parents to work, because they can help with the children. The children get to have that connection to a deeper sense of themselves through their grandparents. So they're losing grandparents. They're often losing parents 
that then flows down through the generations. It affects things like educational outcomes. It affects things like, uh, like, like lifetime earnings and wealth, you know, the, the growth of wealth in, in families and communities. See, this is real. It's not just a statistic or a number. That's where we're grappling with. Uh, if time someone goes to prison, and we know that how overrepresented we are in prisons, and there are many factors for that, and some of that comes from the dysfunction of our own communities as well and the violence of our own communities because they are often very unsafe places for people, particularly vulnerable people, women and children. We know the rates of violence, domestic violence and so on are very high in our communities, and that's unacceptable. Um, so people end up going to jail. But every time you go to prison... Uh, you reduce your lifetime earning capacity by 40%. So one person goes to jail, what about their kids? What's their kids' inheritance? This is the, this is the vicious cycle that, that we're trapped in. And I, um, I really appreciate it in, in your book, Stan, because of your working life, you have travelled to the world's um, epic conflict mm. zones that, and we understand that in some parts of the world these conflicts go back generations. Mm. That's true here too. And I think, yes. I wonder if you think, oh, whether you think we understand as a nation here that we've had frontier wars that there are freedom fighters here there are warriors here and that um i think you write that the shadow of those wars casts a very deep shadow even now and i wonder if that's understood or or whether this is somewhat you know going there people still have a denial about our history which is baffling to me because it's actually written on the landscape i write about taking my son to a creek that leads to my parents' house. And the name of that creek is Poison Waterholes Creek. People pass by that every day. That's where they poisoned the water to kill my ancestors. There's an island in the Murrumbidgee River just near my parents' house called Murdering Island where Indigenous people fled to and were shot to death. Now, we didn't name them Poison Waterholes Creek and Murdering Island. The settlers did. And they are the names today. How can we profess ignorance about our history when you have named it? You have told us what happened here because you named it. So we live with the shadow of that. We live with the reality and the reminder of that every day. And it's not just where my parents are. It's right across the country. Now, a proper reckoning of our history doesn't diminish us. I think it enhances the sense of who we are. You say we're warriors, freedom fighters. Yes, we weren't victims. The idea that we were victims, that we just vanished from the frontier, that we were invisible. There's a particular narrative, isn't there? And and yet we, you know, my people were Wiradjuri people in the early settlement around Bathurst, fought a long guerrilla war. War, it was called in the reporting of the day in the Sydney Gazette, as surely as we report the conflicts of our time today in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, it was called an exterminating war. They were the phrases they used. That was the language that was used in the reporting. People were killed. Martial law was declared. We could be shot with impunity. We fought as well. We killed settlers. We ran off um, livestock. We, we burned homesteads to the ground. This was a battle. We fought. They fought. And at the end of a great battle, you have a great settlement. We, we had a settlement on our uh, in our country. Within a generation or so, at the end of those conflicts, the sons of the people born into that conflict were signing up, as my grandfather did, to fight wars for this country. So in, in a proper understanding of who we are and what our history is and what our history tells us about us, about ourselves, we get a greater sense of a shared identity built around a common sense of place. I don't see those things as divisive at all. I don't think we should be ashamed of it. We shouldn't be guilty of that, about it. I'm not saying you all should be blamed and you all should carry a great burden of guilt. I'm saying that here it is. This is how this country was formed. Let's look at it. Let's deal with it. Let's honour it. And let's 
let's move on from it. And what you point out as well is I suppose the immense power imbalance in the way that Aboriginal people have been defined throughout yeah. Australia's post-settlement history. I think you're right that there's been around 60 different 64 definitions. 64 different definitions according to the Australian Law Reform Commission. 64. So we are constantly up for, for negotiation. Who you are, what you are, how do we define you based on skin colour, based on proportion of Aboriginal blood, based on where you lived, who you married, um, you know, exemption certificates, non-exemption certificates. I mean, this is just crazy. But this is the way we've had to live. Now, we've always known who we are. You know, you go to... You know, you go to any part of Australia, you talk about Indigenous people, you mention a family name and you connect yourself to that. I know who I am, my family knows who they are, everyone in my country knows who we are, you mention your name and people can identify you. We are there with the distribution of the first rations and the first blankets in the frontier. You know, we are there on the mission records, we are there in, in the prison records. We exist and we are alive throughout our own history and we are connected to a sense of place through our sense of family. And yet we have constantly been divided and, and pit against each other and constantly prodded and poked by outsiders to tell us who we are. And we're really going over time. I know you've got to go to an appointment, but I wonder, I mean, if we come right to today's politics, um, we, you know, we, we heard that Pat Dobson's going to... Mm. Um, hopefully end up in our Senate here yeah. in Australia and uh, a lot of people have really celebrated that yeah. move and I know a lot of people are asking whether you're going to do the same and end up in Parliament but do you see this as a, a sort of a, a critical pathway that we have a really yeah. great leaders from outside of politics moving in with yeah, all think, of this I wealth think it's of good. knowledge? I think, I think the quality of our parliamentarians is really is not, not all that it could be you know, we, we, that's, a, that's a polite way yeah, of putting it. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, I mean, the process of selecting candidates um, means you don't get the best. You get the people who have played the system, who have played the game. You know, the union official, the son of wealthy families. The you know, the, these are the people who find themselves in the parliament by virtue of their place within that sort of party structure, um, and it often locks out, especially locked out. Indigenous people who have never had that foothold. Uh, so to see others, Patrick Dodson will be an extraordinary figure because he speaks with such authority and gravitas right across all sections of the parliament. I think he'll speak with great, great authority from the Senate. Um, we need, do need people, not just Indigenous people, but other people who are able to go there and to bring a greater life experience to bear as well. I think that's really, really vital for... And it is a representative democracy. We need a full representation right across the board in Australia. So, you know, it's it's good. And, and um, from our people, you know, the more that we can engage with that and be at the pointy end of decision-making and policy, the better. Talking to My Country is the book from Stan Grant and it's been wonderful to Lovely. have you in Good. at Triple R nice and um, you can check him out anytime really on NITV and The Guardian yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, he's around. Yeah, I'm around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming down. Thanks, Good Dan. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.